Good evening. You know, when doing premarital counseling, I always start with a question. I ask the guy and the girl to each share why they want to marry the person they're with. This gives me a pretty good indication of where they're at, because if the guy says, well, because she's hot, then I know he's probably not ready. If the girl says, well, because he's going to make a good living, then that could be a red flag. Marriage is for the mature, and the best time to get a divorce is before you get married. So a simple question like, why do you want to marry this person, can go a long way in assessing if an individual is ready for marriage. You know, most, if not all of us, understand marriage to be something that is covenantal and thus solemn and binding. We know the physical attributes or mere emotion cannot be the overriding criteria when it comes to choosing a mate. While physical attraction or a fresh smile or charm or athletic ability, etc., may all be factors in drawing us to someone of the opposite sex, such qualities cannot be the central focus in a marriage. But outside these walls, it often is. Marriage as a whole in our society is largely based on flimsy, superficial criteria, and it all boils down to not only a misunderstanding of marriage, but a misunderstanding of love as well. Our society doesn't have the first clue about real love. Our culture invests in romantic love, which sounds good. I mean, who doesn't want a little romance with their love? However, this romantic love that our society promotes is love that is based on a feeling. It's a mysterious and irresistible force, sometimes referred to as fate. You can't stop it. You fall in and out of it against your will. It's also described as a feeling that's worth any price. Nothing else matters but this feeling of love. It's worth any consequence. It means breaking up another marriage, perhaps, to attain it. And if it does that, then so be it, because this kind of love wants what it wants, and you can't stop it. It's also described as a feeling for the perfect person. You know, love is blind. It sees no initial flaws in the other person. And even if it does, it doesn't matter because this love conquers all. And we also see this romantic love described as a feeling that is the answer to all of our problems. The Beatles saying, all you need is love. Surely the Beatles knew what they were talking about. We can believe the Beatles, right? I mean, they were theologians. This version of love permeates our society. How many movies revolve around a sappy love story? How much revenue is earned from the greeting card companies and romance novel publishers who market this cheap imitation of love? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because quite honestly, I couldn't tell. But, but many of you would have to admit that you like a good love story, right? You've probably found yourself a little teary-eyed as you became captivated by such a story. In the United States, we see many people enter into a marriage for all the wrong reasons. They focus on the wrong things. Physical attraction, lust, emotion, etc. tend to be the focal point. And over time, these qualities change. That's why you can't base a marriage on such attributes because they are fleeting. You know, good looks deteriorate, that initial lust, butterflies fade, other problems arise. You soon learn that this devilishly handsome man you married is a slob, or your gorgeous wife is a poor housekeeper. The two of you may produce beautiful children, but you differ greatly on how to raise them. And love doesn't pay the bills, right? Romantic love doesn't earn a paycheck. We hear phrases like hunting a woman or, or catching a man, and we think that this is just the way that it is until we travel to other parts of the globe. It's then that we realize that much of the world's population doesn't base marriage on the twinge or sensation of romantic love. In fact, many marriages worldwide join a man and a woman 
who have never had the opportunity to fall prey to romantic myths that permeate our culture. A modern-day couple from, say, India, for example, may be brought together at the ripe old age of 13 when the parents of the son survey all the girls in their village before deciding who he should marry. Then both parents reach an agreement and he set a wedding date for several years in the future. Then the parents may notify the children of their decision and allow the future couple to exchange letters every now and then or perhaps meet while closely chaperoned. Eventually, they will be married and move in together as virtual strangers. Sounds ridiculous to us, but no more ridiculous than our system would be to them. What lends even more credibility to the arranged marriage is that societies that practice them tend to have much lower divorce rates than those in the Western world. And while I'm not necessarily advocating for arranged marriages, it's just a fascinating concept to me. And the overriding question in an arranged marriage is not the same pressing question we see in our culture. It's not, whom shall I marry? No, the vital question is, given this partner, what kind of marriage can we construct together? So, I want to consider these two approaches to marriage as they apply to a relationship with God. There are many who approach a relationship with the Heavenly Father like they would any relationship. They enter in on a feeling, a spiritual high. Their cup is overflowing. They come in with unrealistic expectations, perhaps. They expect God to cater to them, to be something that He's not, or to make life easy and convenient. They don't get too far into the relationship before the emotional high wears off and they come to the realization that they do not set the terms of the marriage. And when they reach this conclusion, they, they realize that they can't manipulate God, and so they bail out. They get a divorce. And that is why so many seek a spiritual marriage with other gods. So many of the New Age religions cater to the worshiper. It's all about the human. He becomes his own god. Spirituality becomes about me and what I want. I am the object of worship. Christianity, of course, is very different. I have no control over God's attributes. I don't get to, to define the relationship with Him. I don't get to change Him. I don't make selfish demands before I enter into a relationship with Him. And I can't force Him to change my circumstances before I do trust Him. And our relationship is certainly not based on romantic love or an emotional feeling. Faith is difficult. A marriage to God will be hard and trying at times. There will be peaks and valleys. Therefore, there's no place for superficial feelings or fleeting commitments. It's an all-or-nothing deal. We're either all in or we're all out. You can't be wishy-washy or fickle. To bind yourself to the Lord is going to take every ounce of commitment and dedication that you have. Faith means taking a vow for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness and in health. To love God and to cling to Him no matter what. That's risky. Because God's desires for me might just conflict with my own selfish desires. My will and God's will may be two different things, but we commit anyway because we trust our spouse. Like someone entering into an arranged marriage, I go ahead and I commit to God anyway. I trust in Him regardless, and God commits to me as well, promising a future that will be grander than anything I could have ever imagined. You see, a relationship with God in a lot of ways could be likened to a prearranged marriage. I mean, for starters, God arranged for the possibility of marriage from the very beginning. Ephesians 1, starting in verse 4, Paul writes, Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. 
In love He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. God chose us. And he prearranged the plan of redemption so that we could have the glorious opportunity to enter into a covenant relationship with him. God went first. 1 John 4 and 10 states, In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. We know John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And then it was Romans 5, 6 that reads, For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. You see, God shows us what real love looks like. It's sacrificial. It's unconditional. It goes first. God loves me and wants me regardless of my physical beauty or lack thereof. His love for me is not based on what I bring to the table. He loves me in spite of my flaws and shortcomings. He loves me even when I am unlovable. And in order to prove it, he sent his son to die on a cross. He went first. The arrangement is intended to be permanent and exclusive. You know, the Jews believed that marriage was too serious a commitment to be left up to the dictates of the human heart. Cultures that arrange marriages often feel the same way. The prearrangement is not something that is done in haste or without diligent planning on the part of the parents. Marriage is a most serious step, which is why superficial, flimsy criteria is left out of the equation. And the same holds true in a relationship with God. A spiritual marriage is much too important to be based on an emotional high or a lust for something spiritual. When we commit to a relationship with the Heavenly Father, we are giving our lives away. We are leaving our former life of sin and cleaving to Christ, and we are becoming one with the Savior. This is not some half-hearted commitment that I can break off if I don't like where it's headed. This is a solemn and binding relationship. Someone died so that I could have this oneness. This relationship is sealed with blood, and this marriage and all its glorious benefits are the direct result of me being willing to bury my single life in the waters of baptism, rising a new creature in Christ, and living faithfully in the Lord. The married life is summed up beautifully by Paul in Galatians 2 and 20 where it reads, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Without a doubt, our God expects a spiritual marriage to be permanent. Throughout the Old Testament, we see that the covenant between God and his people referred to, uh, is referred to as a marriage. Those who disobeyed the terms of the covenant and worshiped idols were considered to have committed spiritual adultery. For instance, take a look at Ezekiel chapter 23 and verse 37. It reads, For they have committed adultery, and blood is on their hands. Thus they have committed adultery with their idols, and even caused their sons, whom they bore to me, to pass through the fire to them as food. You know, the book of Hosea is one big metaphor. We see the prophet is a living, breathing example of the faithfulness of God. Though Hosea's wife played the harlot, he's told to go and buy her back and to love her, thus illustrating the faithful love that God has for his children. Spiritual fidelity demands that we place a premium on being faithful to God in his covenant. He demands it, and quite frankly, he deserves nothing less. He made the ultimate sacrifice for the relationship. We must be willing to sacrifice anything that may stand in the way of our love and devotion 
to Him. Permanency and longevity in any relationship can be difficult. Even the most faithful couples can find that weathering the storms and standing the test of time, that can be a monumental task. I wonder if arranged marriages are more successful because the couples are afraid of disappointing their parents. You know, I wonder if the cultural backlash is so great that the married couple just doesn't ever consider divorce, no matter how bad things get. I wonder how many of the arranged marriages are successful in the fact that they're living in love together, de devoted to one another, and seeking to live out God's plan for marriage. You and I both know there is a big difference between living out a faithful, loving marriage and just being married. A couple can be married for many years while still living an emotional divorce. And so it is vitally important to remember that longevity and exclusivity is not a goal in and of itself. The goal of any marriage, earthly or spiritual, should be to make it godly. Another thing that I talk about when doing premarital counseling is removing divorce from the equation. So many times divorce is the default setting. If things don't work out, we'll just get a divorce. But when you remove divorce from the equation, you, you're really left with only one other feasible course of action, and that is to work it out. When problems arise, rather than asking yourself, how can I get out of this, you ask, how can I get through this? The same applies in a relationship with the Heavenly Father. So many are ready to give up on the relationship at the slightest hint of trouble. Remove divorce from the equation, determine to let go and allow God to help you make it through those crisis moments. When it comes to a spiritual marriage, many enter into the relationship with a problem-solution approach. There are those who come to God expecting all of their problems to be solved. They anticipate God to be a solution to all of their problems, so they give money because they expect God to give them tenfold back. They strive to live right so that God will prosper them. If they act good, they expect God to give them good things. And so they choose God, much like one would choose a spouse in, in a romantic love culture, by seeking desirable results. They come into the relationship expecting God to satisfy their wants or meet some unrealistic presupposed standards. Oftentimes, what they seek is a relationship of convenience. But as we all know, becoming a Christian does not guarantee a trial-free life. In fact, in some countries, becoming a Christian all but guarantees unemployment, family rejection, social hatred, imprisonment, maybe even death. Human marriages will most certainly face their fair share of trials. Many married couples may admit to having times where they questioned the relationship or times when they wondered if their marriage would last. But they can look back with fondness today because they were determined to make the relationship work. Older couples may even reminisce about troublesome times in their marriage with humor and nostalgia as they talk about how much the storms strengthened their bond. My point is this. Crisis moments can be a great blessing to the overall health of the relationship. They can either draw a couple closer together or drive them further apart. The key is in how one approaches the relationship. If you expect marriage to be problem-free, you're probably going to be highly disappointed. And the tiniest trial will likely do you in. If, however, you approach the relationship with the mentality that nothing is going to sever the bond, then you will be well-equipped to handle whatever may come your way. Taking divorce out of the equation forces a couple to work together toward a solution. You know, when a couple stands before the preacher and recites those vows, they're not thinking about the negative, only the positive, for better, richer, in health. The alternative is not on the radar. For worse, poverty, sickness, 
That's not even considered. Those vows say a lot. But to the couple who are giddy and consumed with excitement, the adverse side of things is not even a consideration most of the time. But what if? What if? What if you have to feed him someday because he can't feed himself? What if you have to push her around in a wheelchair? What if you're on the brink of divorce? Then what? What's the glue that holds you together when everything around you seems to be falling apart? I think you know the answer. It's our marriage to Christ. That marriage outweighs any other earthly relationship and it gives strength, meaning, and purpose to all other earthly relationships, not the least of which is matrimony. So, I ask you tonight, what's, what's your status? That's been the theme of this series, relationship status. What's your status? Are you married? If not, then why not ask for God's hand in marriage? Maybe you've hit a rough patch? Then mend the relationship. Life is too short and your soul is far too precious to live in an unhealthy marriage or to live divorced from God. Start with your heavenly marriage. Work your way down. Let it affect your earthly marriage or every other relationship in your life. Get the vertical right and the horizontal will fall into place. Let's pray. Most kind and gracious Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for another day. We thank you so much for your love and grace and mercy, and we thank you for the opportunity to bind ourselves to you, that you want us, that you want a relationship with us, that you desire for us to be close to you. And thank you for sending your son so that that is possible, so that you can make that happen. God, we pray that all of us will seek to live at the center of your will and that we will help others who maybe don't know you or who don't have a relationship with you to do the same. God, at this time, we pray for Betty Grant, the loss of Jack. We pray for all of those who are dealing with devastating loss. We've had so many in our congregation that have dealt with the effects of, of, of COVID and, and all other kinds of sickness and many that are struggling. We just pray for those at this time. Thank you for the church. May we rally around one another so that we can get through these times, so that we can be back together in full strength and full force very soon. God, we love you. We thank you. And it's in your son's precious name we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for tuning in. I love you guys. We'll see you next week. Bye-bye.